Welcome to the Skift Podcast, weekly conversations on global travel trend lines. I'm your host, Hannah Sampson. This is the year that travelers might have to start questioning their hotel loyalties, if only because hotel loyalty programs are changing so much. Marriott is trying to figure out what to do with Starwood's SPG. Hyatt's new program will have just launched by the time anyone hears this conversation. And Hilton just announced a bunch of new features. And all of these changes are taking place as online travel agencies continue to lure many travelers driven by price rather than points. And up and coming accommodation providers like Airbnb win fans without even offering a loyalty program at all. On today's episode of this gift podcast, we're talking loyalty, who's doing it right, who's still learning, and how it is continuing to evolve. Our guest is Gary Leff, an expert on loyalty and travel experience who writes the View from the Wing blog. He's joining me and Skift Hospitality Editor Deanna Ting. We'll also hear from some interviews that Deanna did in Los Angeles at the America's Lodging Investment Summit. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Great to be here. So let's jump in. Gary, what is the main problem with loyalty programs that hotel companies are trying to fix right now? And how good a job are they doing? Well, so we're certainly in a time of flux. Um, much of that is driven by uh, you know, consolidation in the industry. So, you know, IHG, you know, swallowing Kimpton, and we're going to see, you know, changes to their program, um, Fairmont and Accor, obviously the big behemoth being Marriott and Starwood. And that one is really interesting because, uh, you know, initially I think there was a tremendous amount of skepticism among Starwood's members as to what that's going to look like. And still certainly a wait and see situation, although Marriott's gone to great lengths to try to reassure those members. And, you know, the, the deal was done, you know, very quickly and, you know, at a very high level about, you know, bulking up their size, about the scale, you know, th- that they could achieve for leverage with their, uh, you know, against the OTAs and what they're going to have to pay for bookings, um, as well as uh, for with uh, corporate uh, travel agreements. And then all of a sudden they realized, well, they have these really incredibly low customers that they don't want to lose and what's going on there and how do they do that but also that they're um, uh, growing in the scale of, of their brands I mean moving from you know 19 to 30 brands and so what does that mean well in the last quarterly um, uh, financial call uh, Arnie Sorensen from Marriott says that you don't actually need to have uh, direct marketing budgets uh, built into each of the different brands and you don't have huge costs associated because you've got this loyalty program and so hotels are really starting to figure out that loyalty programs aren't just uh, a mechanism of communicating to consumers, although that's certainly true, but they're a way of allowing them to um, expand their footprint um, across brands because consumers are going to uh, respond. uh, There's incredible stickiness um, that allows them to, you know, have more brands and as a result, you know, earn more management fees, right? And so, and and as the hotel industry consolidates, uh, loyalty is becoming more and more important, interestingly, in a way that we've seen the opposite to some extent with, from airlines, right? Airlines, as we've seen consolidation, airlines have been generally full, right? And so they haven't needed to spend as much in marketing dollars to fill those incremental seats. And we've seen cutbacks in airline loyalty programs. But we've seen the hotel programs uh, increase in their importance at the same time. So in, in some sense, almost the opposite of what you would have expected. Yeah. 
Sigur, I was just wondering, you know, is it just us or are we sort of in the middle of a time where a lot of loyalty, innovation and experimentation is kind of taking place? Uh, I I did this quick interview uh, with Scott Berman from PwC at Alice, uh, and I think we have a clip from him that we can play. I think there's a recognition um, that the logic sector has to be a little more creative commercially. Um, and you're seeing that through different partnerships, right? Is that you, you know, used to be redeem your points for a room or, or an airline seat, um, you know, and, you know, now uh, retail um, is, is playing such a big role. And I think that's a story in and of itself is how the retail sector and the lodging sector are in parallel. Right. Um, I think there is um, envy from both for different reasons, <laughs> um, you know, and, and so when we look at how our clients are positioning themselves and setting up their digital strategy, they're not looking at their peers. They're looking at, at retail. Right. And, um, you know, and, and, and so that that creates a different sort of loyalty. Right. Um, so it's the connecting the dots, um, you know, amongst these different partners. But I think as consultants, what we see is how important loyalty is to sort of overall brand value, right? When I first got into the industry, you know, 30 years ago, it was about reservation systems, right? Those are still relevant, but they're one piece of the overall, you know, brand um, infrastructure, right? So I, I would expect a lot of, of interesting and different programming, um, you know, and, and, you know, it, it is a lot about consumers. I mean, our own firm, um, you know, is a huge, uh, demand driver of, of corporate travel, right. right? And just, you know, the average age in our firm is 27. Um, and our young people who travel, you know, it's all about, you know, uh, accumulating points. Right. Right. Okay. And, and, and they become loyal. You know, and it drives our behavior in terms of procuring room nights. Um, you know, and, and it's very interesting to look at the demographics. So uh, would you kind of agree with his assessment? Do you think that there is a new generation of travelers out there who are super loyal to loyalty programs or are they just sort of gaming the system in a lot of ways? And well, So there's a lot that was embedded in, um, in, in that clip. I think there was, you know, discussion of, you know, millennials and loyalty. There was discussion of retail. I mean, first on the retail, I think we shouldn't overemphasize that. There are some opportunities for synergies, but we started to see it you know, a decade ago, mostly on the airline side the airlines had a problem, which was you've got all these points and a limited supply of seats and people are have, having frustrations. What are other things that they could do with their points? Um, and, and retail never really even took off on that side, at least in terms of a percentage of redemptions. Why? Because you know, getting a toaster or a washing machine for your points isn't nearly as aspirational as the trip to Hawaii. So it just doesn't drive long-term behavior uh, in the same way. Hotels don't even have quite the same inventory problem uh, that airlines have had. Uh, 
there are opportunities, and we've also seen retailers effectively, you know, leveraging or leasing the programs of um, hotels the same way we've seen you know, other merchants use airline programs. Uh, so, you know, Uber, right, did their partnership, you know, that's already been sort of scaled back, but with Starwood, where, you know, they're awarding Starwood points, uh, and there's also a data play involved, but they're awarding Starwood points for taking Uber rides. Um, and that, you know, helped. Uh, at least the, the idea was, you know, we don't have our own loyalty program, but we can, you know, borrow one that we think is already going to be sticky. And, you know, we, but and we've seen that obviously more and originally on the airline side. Um, there's less of a need, except that there is a niche play with retail, which a certain amount of people who travel so much. And the last thing that they want to do with their points is take another trip. Right. And so, okay, I don't have to do that, but I can, you know, make it up to my family, not with more travel, but with stuff. And you're never going to get the same value when you're using a third, you know, using your points for a third party's products as you are for the travel products of the program you're in. But there's there's a certainly a niche play there. I don't think we should overstate the degree of importance that retail plays, although there are lessons that we can learn from the marketing on each side. As far as you know, younger travel and millennials go, the conventional wisdom seems to be that you know programs aren't connecting as well with millennials. Um, so rather than saying, oh well, they're you know, I think that if you're working at a consulting firm and you're a huge traveler, you're going to be much more engaged in um, the loyalty programs by virtue of your um, travel experience, right? Versus uh, if you're you know less engaged, not the you know week in week out business traveler. Um, but the real problem there, the, you know, I, I think a lot of programs get this wrong. The pull, I, sort of what the, a lot of the consultants are selling is, you know, you need, you know, low value, quick, instant gratification. Well, that's really a second best. The challenge is that millennials are less trusting of institutions. <laughs> and um, what that means is, you know, in, in the loyalty context, you're, you know, the programs are telling folks, you know, if you take action of a specific kind, you know, now, give us your business now and there's going to be rewards in the future. It's an intertemporal play. What happens when you don't trust that, right? You have that's when you sort of scale back to you know. Well, we're going to show you really quickly. You can get something, but something isn't as you know driving of long term consumer behavior as the thing that you put on your screensaver and stare at every day and dream about in the future and is really going to motivate behavior, right? So a five dollar Starbucks card, you know, or says you know the toaster oven uh, isn't the trip to Hawaii or you know going to Europe, and so you know the, the real challenge is building trust and a lot of loyalty programs have been like really bad at that right you know either a you know when you do scale things back and then you tell consumers their improvements right you know no loyalty program ever should use the word enhancement again um, because millennials in particular don't trust it and so if you want to like if you want to engage that market you have to build you know trust and one way you can do that is by demonstrating value quickly but you need to transition them to longer term value, you know, as, as we're discussing in the context of people who are really engaged in the program, a, you know, PwC weekly traveler who sees the benefits of loyalty, um, you know, it's how do you, how do you prove that value proposition? Yeah, well, and, and that segues perfectly because we hear, kind of depending on the segment, but we hear some hotels, companies talk about the need for instant gratification or e like really easy redemption, quick redemption. Um, and others saying, well, points just aren't really that important to our travelers. Um, and that's maybe if they're like in a high-end luxury segment where they're focusing more on like in-trip in experience. So what's, 
given those extremes and what you just talked about, um, what's like the common necessary thread, regardless of the level of service? Well, I mean, I think that at a very fundamental level, loyalty marketing comes down to you know two components: you know, recognition and reward. And you know there are two sides of the coin. Some programs focus more on one than another. Um, some believe that their travelers, you know, care more about one than another. And certain travelers do, right? But um, it's about getting the proportions right. It's not that one matters and the other doesn't. Um, so you know, you've got the earn and burn proposition of a program that's going to matter, you know, virtually to everyone, and certainly to the you know business traveler, the very frequent traveler who's traveling on someone else's dime, but they're choosing all. Also, where you know where can I get something back for myself? That's the original fundamental idea of the frequent flyer program. Is we're going to get you to choose us because you know you're traveling on your employer's dime. You're going to choose us even when it's a little bit less convenient because you're racking up something for yourself later, right? And it's even a little bit squirrely, right? You're telling somebody you know don't necessarily buy what's in your employer's interest. Um, you know we're we're going to sort of give you a little bit something on the side, but it's come to be accepted in you know in in our culture and certain. Certainly, in an environment where you know price competitive, people are following their travel policies. It's you know it's it's beneficial. So you know you've got your you know earn and burn component, and then you've got your component of how do you make that travel experience better. And you know I, I think there have been plenty of examples where programs have tried one and not the other, um, and you know they don't necessarily do so well. You know Wyndham years ago was the by request program. So well we don't do points, but we make sure you have your preferred pillow. Well. That there's there's something there in doing the preferred pillow, but doing only the preferred pillow doesn't get them where they need to go, right? You've got to have you know both recognition and reward, and that's I, I think pretty fundamental. It doesn't really change with demographics except in terms of the proportions, uh, and you know certain upscale you know they they they're very well attuned to getting the recognition component right but you know Ritz Carlton introduced the rewards component during the uh, great recession right um, because they recognized that you know that mattered even in the luxury segment um, along those lines um, Deanna spoke to the CEOs both of best Western um, which describes itself as mid-scale right? mm-hmm. and and then Langham hospitality group which is more of a luxury. Uh, company. So I'd like to hear a couple of those clips. Um, first, David Kong, CEO of Best Western, and then we'll get Robert Warman, President and CEO of Langham. On the redemption side, we want to create a lot more uh, of what's uh, easier for people to redeem. I think already we have the lowest threshold for redemption. I think it's only 66,250 points you can redeem a gift card. Uh, which is the lowest redemption level. Um, but we also want to put awards on sale. Um, we want to create a situation where the hotels feel good about giving more inventory for redemption, and we also want to open up more opportunities for redemption because we don't want people to earn points and say they have nowhere to use it. So that, that was going to effect, and we tested this um, towards the end of last year, and it's so successful, we are continuing it, which is, to make uh, what's much more um, uh, visible. So when, when people stay with us during this uh, promotional period, we get them a $10 uh, travel card. There's no limit to it. Oh, great. So the more you say, the more you earn, and you get it right away in addition to the points that you earn. 
so we tested that. It was very successful, so we're continuing it into this season. Um, the instant redemption, when people show up at a hotel, they want to use the points, hey, there's a room available, why not? So we are going to work on that as well. We have that technical ability. It's a matter of uh, convincing the hotel that, hey, we all want to do that because it enriches the program, plus inventory is sitting there anyway. Why not use that to stimulate trial and, and uh, get some revenue for it? So I think we, you will see that uh, going to focus. And now here's kind of the opposite end of that spectrum um, with Robert Warman from Langham. Right now, I see most of our guests looking for recognition. Um, you know, I don't see the bulk of, particularly in the luxury segment, um, our guests running around looking for, you know, loyalty is an interesting thing. They're, they're, they're basically just giveaways. I mean, you know, and that's been going on for years. Banks used to give toasters away when you deposited $500 um, into a checking account. Was that, is it, was that a loyalty program or, you know, are they, are they just, is it just a rebate? Um, you know, and, and, and points are a rebate um, in, in some sense. And we found most of our customers and guests aren't necessarily looking for, for a rebate. They're looking for us to recognize them, to understand their unique desires, um, and, and, and make sure that we treat them special, but treat them in the manner that they want, to let them know what's, in, what's important to, to them. Um, and so we have not, we're not, you know, embarking on a, a massive global program to, you know, reduce rates because you're a member and give you, you know, X number of points or a rebate back. Um, uh, we don't we don't necessarily see that in the luxury market today is 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 a necessity. So, um, any thoughts on what we heard there, Gary? Well, certainly, you're going to be dealing with incredibly different um, uh, budgets when you're talking about both the customer segments and the you know margins on a room um, between the two uh, brands. I mean, I do think that if you're going to make the case that customers staying at you know Langham hotels don't want free Langham hotel nights, I mean, I, I think that's kind of <laughs> crazy. It's not, and, and I think you want to draw you want to draw a distinction between the sign up bonus for a checking account getting a toaster um, and a reward for you know for continuing to stay at a brand right and these are two fundamentally different things now I mean we the things like the financial crisis I mentioned you know upended um, a lot of things you know Ritz Carlton moving from the luxury segment into offering those rebates but at the same time during the financial crisis you know it, you know it used to be um, you used to get a free you sign up for a checking account you get a free toaster what they did was you know when you buy a toaster they would give you a free bank right that was sort of the way the financial crisis changed the the way we think about things um, but yeah I mean look if you're best Western you know where you're basically a, um, a a central booking system you know for you know independently owned you know independently managed properties there are you know limited levers you can pull and we sort of heard that we're trying to convince the properties about the benefit of you know instant redemption on property not a new idea right you know Starwood had you know instant redemption basically from the beginning you know Hyatt added that I think in 2012, um, you know, using your points, you know, again, not going to give you as great a value when you're directly trading off with cash that you would spend, but you know, an opportunity for people to use, you know, large amount of points to offset expenses, um, you know, 
great you know, opportunity and idea. You know, in the luxury segment, and some of it does have to do with scale too. You have to be you know large enough where people have the opportunity to continue to stay at your properties without you know that much work, right? It gets to the idea of the the, the large but you know much smaller chains than um, you know Marriott and Hilton and IHG have had to work harder to keep the loyalty of their uh, guests, right? You know, something that I've said for years is that you know it takes effort to be loyal to Hyatt, right? Because you may it may not be the property that's closest to where your meetings are. Um, you may have to go out of your way to choose it. But if you you know walk down the street, you happen to trip and fall into you know one of Marriott's nineteen now thirty brands. <laughs> so and and that was the fundamental reason why my original expectation was that the combined program ought to be less rewarding um, than say you know Starwood you know individually. Now Starwood was relatively light in terms of rebates for in hotel spend, but really strong on you know the recognition side. They had both, um, but it was you know their emphasis was much more on the recognition. Um, but you know whereas Marriott was pretty good actually for in hotel uh, spend rebates and much lighter on the recognition. You didn't have um, you know confirmed suite upgrades. You didn't have it used to not even have breakfast on the weekends until a few years ago. You still don't have breakfast at resorts for the top elite. You stay seventy five nights in a Marriott and you you know for all your business travel you go away on vacation you stay at a Marriott resort and that seventy five night platinum doesn't get breakfast right and you know so there's a lot of things that fundamentally I think they're they're needing to change but the expectation was well they didn't need to be so rewarding because of their scale their scale is growing um, you know why is that going to change well except that they do now have all of these brands and many of them are higher end brands and so they have to have better recognition for those clients that for that clientele um, to remain loyal. They don't want to lose those customers. And they're able to now um, uh, leverage more, you know, all these customers, they say, you know, 11% overlap in the data files. So it's an acquisition of a lot of customers that they then want to be able to cross-sell into other hotels where someone might not have stayed with Starwood because of location. Now they can. Um, and that was, you know, from the very get-go, the first thing that they did on day one, the ability to status match across the programs, transfer points across the programs, begin to get customers acquainted with the, you know, full scope of that network. Um, yeah, I guess that, that's a perfect segue into us talking about very sp- like specific loyalty programs. Um, obviously, Marriott Starwood is the biggest one that everyone's kind of have got their eye on. Uh, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge for Marriott as it tries to combine all three of its programs, <laughs> including Ritz-Carlton? Well, I think that there are fundamentally um, two challenges for them on the back end. I mean, one is the IT challenge. Um, they did a lot better at the get-go. I did not expect that day one they would be ready to go with status matching and points transfers. Um, although it's also the case that right now, um, you know, if you stay at a Starwood hotel, that does not help you uh, earn your status with Marriott. I mean, so there's a lot of work to do. But just getting all the properties into the same data system uh, is going is a is a huge um, you know challenge. Their experience with other acquisitions, smaller acquisitions. I mean, it takes at least eighteen months uh, to do that, and there are lots of challenges along the way. The bottom line for any of these kinds of things is, you know, IT is hard. Um, you know, I, I've very rarely seen an IT project uh, finish early and under budget. 
right? Um, and, and so that's uh, that's a big challenge. And the other big challenge is uh, with you know with thirty brands, and you know these are you know asset light companies, right? Um, so you've got independent owners that have their own view on things. Well, you know how, what do you have in Marriott today before the Starwood you know, integration? You have carve outs with different brands. So you know years ago they acquired Courtyard. Well, Courtyard basically you know has no benefits. Just about, you know, so you don't have, uh, you know, a, a platinum doesn't, you know, gets breakfast at like everywhere else. Well, courtyards have, you know, restaurants effectively, um, but you don't get breakfast at courtyard properties. That's well, crazy. Why, you know, do they do that? Because they acquire that and it's like hard and say, okay, well, we won't force that on you. So now, you know, that they've got this big bang coming. It's both an opportunity and a challenge. And it's, and, and the challenge is greater because you've got like 5,000 properties. Uh, now they've, you know, Owners who you know own several of them, but also own several across different chains. You know, and you've got to you know, get your owners on board with you know all of the benefits. So it's different than an airline, where the airline is the one that's providing these you know benefits to you out of their program. I mean, yeah, there are um, uh, there are regional carriers, but even you know, but the benefits are generally managed centrally. Whereas the hotels have this greater com- you know, complexity of challenge, where you know most of the benefits are delivered on property, right? And the person that's most responsible oftentimes for that point of contact is the person that you check in with at the front desk. I mean, it's not even your, you know, senior executive who may may or may not be bought into the loyalty program. I mean, you've got this game of telephone with two cups and a string. So you've, you know, where you, that you're pushing on from, you know, the, the head office and the folks in charge of loyalty where you're trying to get, you know, folks to in line. So Marriott last spring introduces, you know, 4 p.m. late checkout, something that Starwood was very Good at um, well, I mean, people will complain about an individual property, but over the whole, overall, it was a long-term benefit that you know I've never had you know any pushback on at a property where it was eligible, right? So initially, you know, they roll it out. A lot of their um, owners and managers were surprised. I mean, I had one uh, manager of a you know high-profile property say, "Yeah, we're not going to do that." Mm-hmm. Well. They do, okay, um, but it's a challenge. You've got to you've got to do the communication. You've got to get them on board. And you know what's your mechanism for noncompliance and the you know and and, and the financial penalties for noncompliance. Uh, how do you monitor? How do you manage? You know how do you incentivize? Uh, and you know at, given the scale, given the number of brands, given the owners, these are you know gargantuan tasks ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Um, we we maybe need to do a little like pretend time travel here because Hyatt has not, while we're talking, Hyatt has not yet rolled out its new program. Um, but by the time this is airing, it will be out. So so from what you know of Hyatt's new program, um, what do you think of it and and how they've been rolling it out and talking about it so far? So Hyatt's program is really interesting on a lot of levels. They're clearly focusing <laughs> on their most frequent guests um, they're not making themselves competitive um, below that threshold, and they're making it harder to earn uh, that that top tier status. So you're going from you know 25 stays or 50 nights a year to having to do 60 
nights a year to keep that status, and you no longer earn any credit towards top-tier status from credit card spend. I mean, this is a huge departure from the rest of the industry, right? Because with Hilton, just for getting the premium co-brand card, you get their mid-tier status, which gets you most of the benefits of top-tier status. You can get that top-tier status with $40,000 of spend in a year. There's nothing you can spend at Hyatt that helps you on the credit card, unless it's spend at a Hyatt property, right? That helps you get uh, towards that top tier stat. So fewer people that they're focusing on uh, with more benefits. And then kind of everyone else, um, you know, they're tweaking the benefits. And in some cases, there's improvements, but not competitive with uh, Hilton and Marriott at that mid-tier. Uh, so it's a, you know, it, it's a very focused play on their part. And at the same time, it's a play that even though there are, I think, more benefits for top-tier guests, very much underplayed is the introduction introduction of My Hyatt Concierge. It's effectively Starwood's ambassador instead of at 100 nights at 60, um, which, you know, it's a smaller footprint that makes sense, but, you know, huge new benefit for those top elites, more, you know, more suite upgrades, the potential for more confirmed suite upgrades. I think it's actually the richest top-tier program in the industry. But it's also going to be less costly for hotels because what are they getting rid of? You know, they're getting rid of the um, check-in amenity. No longer have to send up, uh, you know, wine and you know, fruit and cheese to your room if you want. Um, they're getting rid of the, uh, you know, guaranteed turndown service where it's not otherwise part of the brand standard. So, you know. Hotels aren't going to have to keep you know, the housekeeping folks on staff as late in the day or as many. So there's some cost savings associated with these changes as well. Uh, so you know, it's in some sense the opposite of what Hilton is doing. So Hilton is figuring out how do we make small numbers of points useful um, the masses of folks who aren't very, very frequent customers accumulating lots of points, uh, we're giving them the ability to use their, you know, 5,000 points. They don't have to get up to, you know, 25,000 points uh, for that mid-tier room. Uh, or they can use, you know, they have their Amazon partnership, which, you know, we'll see how it works out. It's not going to be great for consumers, but it's going to be better for consumers who might have otherwise spent points on merchandise. Um, so unlocking the value of small points points versus focusing on the most frequent customers. And to me, in the Hilton case, like Hilton's already pretty good on the you know, earn and burn stuff, right? Where they completely fall flat is on the recognition component of loyalty. And their focus on what are they doing, like what are they adding now, is doubling down on the stuff they're already good at, not uh, plugging the gaps with the recognition of the most loyal customers. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a lot to, to unpack from that. I, I, I just keep thinking too, like um, when I cover all these different hotel loyalty programs and write about them for Skift, I feel like there are those sort of like two buckets that you described, like that there's that Hyatt approach and then there's like that Hilton approach or a Wyndham approach. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, is there is there such a thing as a loyalty program that can kind of work for everyone, <laughs> um, you know, that, that can appeal to travelers who aren't quite as frequent or can appeal to road warriors or is there no in between like uh, what's a smarter move I guess for for these hotel companies to pursue well look, I mean you know Arnie Sorensen at Marriott says that he wants Marriott to become uh, the only program you'll ever need 
Now, I'm not sure, you know, I, I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly that you can go just about anywhere and, you know, and stick with them. Uh, you know, so Marriott, you know, grew their international presence, their higher end presence. And, you know, Starwood is, you know, getting a footprint in smaller cities. Um, and so geographically, that's more true. Um but I think that it really comes down to you know the individual consumer and tastes, and you, one company isn't going to appeal to literally everyone and every profile because your you know your your hotel demographics your hotel profiles are going to be different. Um, so what experience are you offering? Um, and you know, given limited budgets, I mean, folks are going to focus in different areas where they're going to invest resources, and the relative investment is going to appeal to different customers. So. You know, to my mind, it's since about 2009, Hyatt has had the you know, best top tier experience. Now, it's not for everyone because of scale. And so even if it's like the best program, if the hotels aren't where you need to be, it's not a match. Well, if the hotels are where you need to be and you don't feel you know, recognized, there are you know, multiple competing chains at the, really, you know, at the really big size. And what's your budget for the particular properties? So you know, Hyatt tends to be you know, more upscale but you know, versus say you know IHG, so you know who's paying the bill. You know what what's important to you as the consumer uh, on the particular properties, as well as the recognition. And it's so no, I don't I don't think we're going to get to the place where you know there's one program that clearly appeals to all customers. But I think that um, programs can do you know substantially better and better in appealing to you know the customers that they have that they can get more business from than they do today, uh, as well as to you know, customers of their competitors who are going to, you know, like their offerings better. Kind of moving out of those established programs um, into the newer sharing economy. Um, when Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky went on Twitter over the holidays to like crowdsource new ideas, um, one of the top requests he got was for a loyalty program for Airbnb. Um, so how do you think companies like that or or Uber or Lyft um, will approach loyalty going forward. Yeah. So, I mean, it's worth noting that, I mean, Airbnb has a um, rebate component already, right? So they've partnered with um, uh, Virgin America, they've partnered with Qantas, now they've partnered with Delta. And you can earn points, effectively, a rebate in someone else's currency for your, um, you know, for your stays. It's really hard if you're dealing with um, you know individually owned properties and often properties that where it's like you know one owner one property um, or you know Uber you know one driver one car to offer a um, you know, a, a consistent loyalty experience um, and you know what does it mean you know what the owner is going of a of an Airbnb is going to have to you know stock the fridge with your favorite um, juice or soda um, before they leave because you're an Airbnb. And be VIP, and how do you, um, you know, how do you drive that consistent experience? You know, what do, you, how do you fund that experience? Do you, you know, give you know a greater percentage uh, of the take to those folks uh, in order to fund whatever benefits you're trying to kick back, or do you um, take more from uh, those folks if you're if you're driving your VIPs to them? And you know, what does that, what does the economics look like, and what does the service delivery look like? You know, when you know, it, it's it's hard enough. In the hotel, you know, chains where you know you're licensing them a uh, brand, but it's independent management, and you're really trying to get them to follow your standards. But there, you've also at least got um, you know the ability to you know find them or with 
withhold funds from them. If they're not being compliant, you can much more easily monitor. But the challenge of monitoring um, like a few thousand properties versus the challenge of monitoring every property on the Airbnb platform, um, it's it's gargantuan, right? And so you know, it, it's a difficult nut to to crack. Uber, you know, has had a, a, a recognition program, right, in certain markets like New York, you know, it's Uber VIP, uh, and so we're only going to give our best customers our highest rated drivers. Well, then what does that mean? Now you're waiting longer for a driver. To get, and it's like, okay, so like lots of stumbling, you know, along the way. Um, uh, so it's it's a more difficult challenge. But the fundamentals of what they want to accomplish are the same uh, if you're dealing with a competitive marketplace. Airbnb, I mean, so far, right, we haven't seen um, them really being in the same competitive space as hotels, Right, we keep thinking that well, it's demand for rooms, and now there's more, you know, more supply of rooms, and that's got to drive down price. And yet, you know, occupancy and room rates have have done quite well in the hotel space. And at least so far, what data we've seen, we think that Airbnb is driving, you know, incremental um, uh, stays rather than displacing stays. It's you know taking people who might have otherwise stayed with family and you know putting them in in it's not the bread and butter say business traveler uh, who's going to uh, you know check in not wanting to deal with like how do I get and get my key it's the same every time who may want the services of a hotel so they haven't been in that intense competition yet but to the extent that they get there I mean they're going to need some of those tools that we know have worked really well so so Gary when when Hilton kind of um announced the new features that it was adding that you mentioned, it did sort of seem a little bit like they're kind of trying to copy the airlines programs in, in some ways a little bit. Um, but what I found to be most like news breaking to me was the fact that they dropped that extra H that always irritated me. So I can't, I can't say Hilton huh honors anymore, but um, you know, it's just Hilton honors. And it's just Hilton, not Hilton worldwide. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? I feel like they devalued the program and they've cut the number of H's in half. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm a traditionalist um, and, and I'm connected to uh, the brand and my experiences with it, and it's, they're they're almost telling me that you know all that past you know is is less meaningful in their world going forward with a new name. Um, and I'm desperately hopeful that you know American doesn't drop the double A in advantage. Um, <laughs> they certainly describe, they say, okay, look, we're this you know global brand. The double H is difficult. How do people pronounce it, especially in the rest of the world? And how do you translate it? Um, but all of my British friends say, well, if they cared about that, they should have you know been H-O-N-O-U-R-S, right? Um, and they didn't do that. Um, so if you're going to you know, delve into that thicket, Right of what the right way you know of pronouncing this is you know and whose English is right um, why do that at all so I'm you know I, I I will force myself when I need to to drop the second H um, but you know the the emotional traditionalist in me at least laments that passing. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Absolutely, Gary and Deanna, thank you so much for the conversation. Awesome, enjoyed. Thanks. This show was produced by Ben Glowey, who can be found on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Assistant editor Sarah Enlow provided additional support. To subscribe to this podcast, search for Skift on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a comment to help other listeners find us. Past episodes and a link to subscribe are online at podcast.skift.com. 
And this has been the Skift Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.